Welcome to Scenario D, the podcast that takes you behind the magic by giving you the facts and a whole lot of feels. I'm Lish. And I'm Curves. And this week, we're going down the bayou to learn what it took to make Disney's last 2D animated masterpiece, The Princess and the Frog. So settle in, preferably with a mountain of Tiana's man-catching beignets, as we discover how dreams really do come true in New Orleans. So, Lish, I know you love this movie now. She is Mm -hmm. your second favorite princess. This is your second favorite princess film. But I think it would be remiss of us if we did not mention that this love took time to develop. Oh, yes. It wasn't instantaneous, right? Not immediate. No. I mean, I think the first time I watched this movie, I definitely saw it in theaters. Okay. Uh, It was was a weird experience because I think it was like, a late night show and there was like nobody in the theater except for me and my Mm -hmm. one friend who I went with. And I don't know. It was just, it was very just okay for me. Right. Like I didn't love the music. Uh, I thought it looked beautiful, but it didn't quite grab me. But, and then it, then several years went by, I think. And I didn't watch it just because I, Mm -hmm. you know, wasn't super into it. Then after Brave came out, that was like my like, I love Disney again moment. Yes. Okay. And I started going back through movies and I eventually watched that one again. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, that's like a lot better than I remember it being. And I just kept watching it more and more and more. I think I've seen this movie maybe 300 times at this point. Like so many, at least. Yeah. It's high on my rewatch, for sure. Yeah, for for the listeners, uh, I feel like half the time that Lish tells me she's working away on something for work and watching a Disney movie, the Disney movie that's playing is The Princess and the Frog. And I I had a similar learn-to-love relationship with this film. I did it a disservice, though, by watching it on a plane the first time. I was flying home from Germany. I had been visiting one of my other best friends who was an au pair over there in, like, 2010 and I had never seen it I unlike you did not see it in theater I don't know why I think that was Mm -hmm. well I know why I had kind of lost faith in Disney uh in the 2000s as a lot of people did and since Tangled hadn't happened yet my revival with my love for Disney had not happened yet but I was watching it on a plane and I like you was just kind of like man this music is not grabbing me I didn't really understand the story because they kept interrupting to ask if I wanted a drink so I couldn't keep track of what was going on. There was too much happening around me. And then like you, I revisited it. And I think I actually rewatched it in the first year you and I lived together. So it was only like a year after Mm. this movie, year or two after this movie came out. Right. And I remember sitting on our ugly, ugly plaid couch and watching it by myself and thinking similar to you, I was like, oh, this is actually so much better. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I remember it being. And because the film had made such a little, such a small impact on me the first time I watched it, based on the fact that I was on a plane, I kind of got to watch it with new eyes and really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah. And while sure. I can't say I've watched it 300 times, I have watched it many more times and grown to love a lot of things about it. So 
looking into how it was made, what was happening at Disney at the time, it's been a really exciting experience for me. And I would love you to educate everyone else on how Disney looked at the time that this movie was made. I mean, it's kind of a hot mess still. If you haven't listened to our Mulan episode, definitely listen to that one to hear what was going on in the mid-90s to get caught up. But the mm-hmm. late 90s uh, was not great as well. So yeah. there's there's lots to cover. So strap in, folks. We're going to go through it. So when we last left off, Michael Eisner and Roy Disney were the ones really responsible for Michael Eisner, the company, and Roy Disney, the animation department. Right. Things really started to, I mean, we can see this looking at the films, take a turn south mid to late 90s we're losing our renaissance magic things are not going great and the bottom line on disney was starting to show that as well the company had reported a 97 percent drop in quarterly profit that's crazy that's kind of nuts like people are losing faith i i lost faith i'm blaming it on home on the range everything that went wrong leading up to princess and the frog i'm blaming on home on the range and no one can change my mind that movie single-handedly tanked it <laughs> just it was bad movie. i don't know who just who greenlit that one but it was a bad idea it's probably katzenberg from dreamworks let's be probably <laughs> yeah he had spies he's sabotaging oh, i'm sure somehow yeah. mm-hmm. but anyway roy who was always super vocal about his feelings Bless i mean him. he this is the second time that he actually started a save disney campaign <laughs> because he was just like guys We're going downhill. This is not good. We need a change. And the main point of focus on what he wanted to accomplish this time around was getting Michael Eisner to leave the company, which, I mean, makes sense. We're, We're drying up here. Like, we need some fresh blood. Things are going south. I have a a quick line from his resignation letter. This is 2003. He sent this. This is Roy, right? This is Roy sending to Michael Eisner. Okay. Since Frank's untimely death in 1994, the company has lost its focus, its creative energy, and its heritage. The company under your leadership has failed during the last seven years in many ways. He goes on to list seven key ways in which the company has completely failed. And honestly, like, I really don't disagree with it, with any of them. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of things, not just in the animation department, but that they did wrong with the parks and just Disney Mm -hmm. in general, like we said, really falling short all across the board. So he really went off, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) The main thing that I want to point out that he mentioned was his failure to establish and build constructive relationships with creative partners. And then he goes on to mention Pixar. And I Mm -hmm. think that's a really big one because Disney and Pixar worked together on, at this point, Disney did not own Pixar, but they had uh, a five-year deal so they're distributing they get Mm -hmm. uh, to keep a lot of the profits disney kind of has the leg up as they also keep the character rights and all of that so during all of these negotiations and working with them it kind of unraveled the relationship particularly between steve jobs and michael eisner to the point where Mm. steve jobs just just does not want to work with disney anymore they're trying to get out of their deal They want to do their own thing. And there's just a lot of bad blood there. So I think that was, you know, bad move on Eisner's part to not take an effort to foster that relationship. So long story short, Michael Eisner did resign a little bit after. After Roy was like, buddy, you're terrible. And Michael took some time to think about it and then said, you know what? You're right. (laughs) 
See you later. I mean, I mean, Roy really, it was something that he pushed for. Like he was campaigning even, even after he had left the company. And because he's the person left with Disney in their name, there he mm. does have some pull and some credibility with the board of directors and everything. Yeah. So this is something that he was pushing for for quite a while before Eisner finally resigned. Okay. Uh, and then they bring in, you know, my fave guy, Bob oh. Iger. I mean, CEO. who doesn't love Bob? I, I just want to say, I want to get it on record. That not only is Bob Iger one of the most handsome men to ever work uh, at Disney, yeah. he also <laughs> is the dad we all needed and deserved at the helm of Disney. For real. Yes, he's famously quoted saying that while watching one of the parades at one of the Disney parks, he noticed that all of the characters that were popular over the past 5-10 years were not Disney animation characters, but Pixar characters. Mm-hmm. So... That was a real standout for him as, you know, one of his first moves that he wanted to do as CEO of Disney was to buy Pixar. But he's inheriting a company that's on really bad terms with that studio. So it was a lot of work for him to repair that relationship with Steve Jobs. He spent time going to the studio, talking to John Lasseter, talking to Ed Catmull, learning about the technology, learning about... The films they had in production, learning about their success. As a reminder, John Lasseter was like the story guy at Pixar mm-hmm. and Ed Catmull yes. was in charge of tech. So between Steve, John, and Ed, Bob Iger was really putting in the work to build relationships that would translate into professional ones that would better Absolutely. both yeah. companies. Those were yeah. the, the big three that were really in charge and running that studio. So Steve mm-hmm. Jobs actually said, like, I won't make this move without John and Ed's support. So they yeah. they had a good working relationship and it was really important that all three of them were on board before they moved forward with this. Mm-hmm. In 2006, Disney finally bought Pixar for $7.4 billion. If I could whistle, um, I would whistle stop. here. That's a lot yeah, of money. <laughs> so that's a lot of money, but honestly turned out to be a really successful partnership going forward. Uh, mm-hmm. What specifically Bob noticed when he spent time at Pixar and when he was learning about them is the differences in their culture and mm-hmm. the things that he wanted yep. to implement at Disney Animation to hopefully bring some of that magic back. So he actually proposed that John Lasseter and Ed Catmull run both Pixar Studios and Disney Animation. So they would be in charge of both of those. And that's a big appeal for someone like John Lasseter, who has famously loved Disney his whole career. That's where he started working. He was part of that CalArts class, right? Like he was, he was, yes, he was one Mm -hmm. of the original guys coming in. I think it was the seventies. He actually uh, worked at, I think it was Disneyland was his like oh, part-time okay. job going Sounds to school right. like always a huge fan really passionate about it always a hawaiian shirt yep yes was very interested <laughs> in trying to revive not just the renaissance but the original work that walt had done so we've got a yes. bunch of people now that are very invested in we'll say bringing the magic back so mm. Which we needed, obviously. We we definitely <laughs> needed. I mean, we could run down some of the disasters that came out in the two thousands, but oh my I gosh, just, can we not? I don't even want to talk about no. it. <laughs> it was bad. It's bad. We're gonna have to get there eventually. Uh, with yeah. the way our podcast is going, the what we've planned out, but like, let's leave that until we have to because it's too painful. Yeah. Honestly, it's too painful. 
So currently in production, when these guys took over, was Bolt. So they kind of <laughs> did what they could to salvage that one. Um, it yeah. was kind of a mild success. I personally have not even seen it. So oh my gosh, I really I, I will say in Bolt's defense, it's not as bad as it could have been, but yeah. it's still a struggle bus. It's still just not there. It's not yeah. what we want. I think it was yeah. it was well enough underway that not as bad as it could have been is what they were going for with that one. Yeah. So <laughs> how can we get this to a seven out of ten at the very yeah, most? Exactly. Six and a half exactly. would be fine. Yeah. Yeah. And then the next film, so the the first film that John, Ed, and this new Disney animation studio decided mm-hmm. they were gonna work on was Princess and the Frog. So yes. I found it really interesting, like one of what John Lasseter says, he's like, the first things that I did when I got there is I knew we had to do a 2D feature, which is kind of crazy. They had not done anything 2D since Home on the Range in 2004. I spit at the sound of that name. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, Pixar being very known for their CG. This was yes. kind of an interesting move for Lasseter to suggest that. And the second thing that he knew he needed to do was bring... Ron and John back as director. And who are Ron and John? Ron Clemens and John Musker. Yeah. These these were the directors of The Little Mermaid and a few of the Renaissance films and really were invested in the idea of doing a 2D film. That was something that really, really appealed to them. They had brought back the magic once before. So I think mm-hmm. Lasseter was really hoping that they would be the ones that would be able to do that again because that's what was right. needed mm-hmm. need to shake it up uh, wow take a breath yeah. that was a lot that was a lot of stuff to cover <laughs> lots come up for honestly, air <laughs> lots going on lots going on and i mean 2d was such an interesting choice and you got to think the animators have left like 2004 they're like guys we're done 2d these guys all have to find new jobs they either have to adapt to cg or mm-hmm. they have to find something else. So this was a huge undertaking in that they're having to round up a bunch of these guys that don't even work at the studio anymore. Right. And, I don't like that roundup is kind of a pun when home on the range. Uh, oh, no. Up, oh, no. Cowboys. I'm just, man, I'm seeing I'm seeing those dancing cows and like the magic yodeler everywhere. I don't even know his name. But I honestly, I have not even watched that movie again. So don't. I, yeah. Honestly, I don't even want to make you. When the time comes, I don't yeah. even want you to watch it. It's so bad. I've seen it more than once. Why? We don't know, but I yeah. digress. Why? Princess and the Frog. Anyway. <laughs> they were able to get a lot of really awesome people on this because mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot going on in 2D. Like there wasn't yeah. actually a lot of places for people to go in 2004 for 2D animation. Like there's some TV work to do, but in terms of feature quality animation, there's not a lot going on as the shift to CG is happening at pretty much most of the major studios at this point. That's true. Because even studios like DreamWorks by that point, like DreamWorks yeah. abandoned 2D pretty quickly after the success of Prince of Egypt and then mild yeah. success of films like Rotel Dorado. Like they had yeah. already jumped to kind of like that Shrek territory and honing in on that CG work. Some of the people that they were able to get for this film, names that we've already talked about, Mark Henn. The mm. Princess Queen coming back to supervise the animation of Tiana. Eric Goldberg, famously known for doing the genie. They brought mm-hmm. him to do Lewis, which makes all the sense. He's really great at those 
really big, robust characters and yeah. finding big interesting ways for them to move and the big personalities. Mm-hmm. And then one of our favorites, Andreas Deja, uh, coming back to do Mama Odie on this right. film. At this point, obviously, we know he can do just about anything. So, yeah, he's he's done the villains. He's done the heroes. So, yeah, let's let's give him. Mm-hmm. Let's give him the old lady in the bayou for this one. Yeah. Like, why 2D worked for this film? I think there's a number of reasons why this was absolutely the right choice, apart from it just being a beautiful animation style that should absolutely be resurrected at Disney, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But um, Ron and John really pushed for it. And they also were the ones pushing to bring back the fairy tale, which, again, a move they did on The Little Mermaid and worked so well. So that was something that yeah. was really important. I think it was interesting to have a fairy tale set in the U.S., not something that had been done before, and in an actual... Oh, uh, except Pocahontas. Um, I don't know if we're calling that a fairy tale, though. No, that's true. I'm sorry. If we're looking yeah. through the lens of fairy tale, you're correct. But yeah, I they after kind of thinking they wanted to do the United States, they quickly came to the appeal of New Orleans and how it would lend itself to a painted 2D background They Mm -hmm. really wanted to draw a lot of inspiration from Disney classics. Um, So Bambi was a huge one for the forest inspiration. The art director on the film is famous for saying Bambi was painted like it was like to be in a forest, not just what a forest would look like. And that's something that they really wanted to capture with the essence of the bayou and Princess and the Frog. And even New Orleans as a city, it's so vibrant and it's so lively there. And you can tell from the opening scenes of the film that they really tried to capture an atmosphere and not just buildings. Like there's a lot of moving pieces that help bring that to life that you don't see in all of Disney's animated films. A hundred percent. And a big inspiration for the New Orleans portions was Lady and the Tramp, which John Lasseter really calls out as being like very classic Disney and the essence Mm. of a lot of those early animations that weren't super stylized. Like you get into a sleeping beauty that's driven by someone like Ivan Earl that has its own unique style, but they really wanted that classic Disney feel something that Walt would have really driven. Mm -hmm. And so those two films were really key inspirations for them. Mm -hmm. And yeah. actually, fun fact, New Orleans was Walt Disney's favorite city in the States. Oh, interesting. John Lasseter, as a diehard like Walt Disney fan, that was another yeah. thing that appealed to him about New Orleans as a setting. Fun oh, fact. for sure. An actual fun fact. Yes. Not like Sean Yu being on a horse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think another appeal on the 2D stuff was that you can really have moments where you're taking out of the current reality to the fantastical one. And have everything Mm. flow very smoothly. Something that you can't do in a live action film and can be a bit jarring in CG. So they did that a lot with the songs in this one. Um, Like, for example, like Facilier's Are You Ready? Where it's really just like a whole other trip going down that one. That's that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And then Tiana's Almost There. It's a whole different animation style that Mm -hmm. it's not it it flows really smoothly it doesn't pull you out and you're thinking oh like why does this look different it just flows really well to give you that insight into our character and it's very Mm -hmm. effective for her heroine anthem as we like to call them where you're finding out what this character wants and what's driving her 
I think friends on the other side would have literally caused my mom to have a heart attack if it, that was in 3D, like CG animation. Yeah. When I had her <laughs> watch that much. movie with us, she was so uncomfortable because like magic is something that just makes her uncomfortable and voodoo um, mm-hmm. as as a concept was something that was kind yeah. of like eh, to her. So if that had been in CG, I don't think my mom would have slept for weeks. Yeah. Like because And like you said, it would have been so much more jarring to have all of those elements that they had in the 2D version, if they tried to emulate that in CG, it would have been too much. It would have been so overwhelming as a viewer to watch all of that happen. So there's something really magical you can do in 2D where you can transition mm-hmm. from the real world to the fantastical one very smoothly. Yeah. Where yeah, CG, for the purposes... when you're going for a super realistic look, you can't mm-hmm. do that as well. So I think that's totally. just another plus in the 2D column that really brought the songs and the entertainment value of the animation that's happening during the songs to a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. So the same way that John Lasseter was obsessed with some of those classic Disney films, they started to take a lot of the same approaches that they did in those earlier Disney films, like whether it was the Renaissance or way back in Walt's days where they're using a lot of reference points to bring this Mm -hmm. film to life so one of the things that the animators did is that they actually visited an old louisiana plantation to learn more about what women's lives at the time would have been like i'm sure that there are a lot of controversial things around that in the light of where we are now and where those conversations are coming from but this was something the animators thought was important for them to get into the headspace of New Orleans in particular. And they also used live action footage for a lot of the dancing sequences. And I think they worked with a really popular choreographer at the time. And the goal mm-hmm. was to come up with unique movement patterns for each character. So when I read that, I thought, you know what? You can actually see that happening. Like everyone moves very differently. And they mm-hmm. started this in Pocahontas. That was something that Glenn Keane was really passionate about unlocking were these very unique, graceful, small movements. And they continued yeah. that here. Those small attentions to detail go so far. And there were so many of them in this film because Tiana is left-handed, for example, because the voice actress, Aniki mm-hmm. Noni Rose, she's left-handed. And the voice of Facilier, Keith David, he has a gap in his teeth. So they put a gap in Facilier's teeth as well. There was a lot of that kind of method acting. They were really struggling to figure out how to animate the frogs because frogs are not notoriously cute creatures. Exactly. Yeah. Well, they actually brought frogs in as a reference point, (laughs) which they often do when they're animating animals. And it's like they kept coming out like so ugly and they had to figure out a way to mm-hmm. have them look like the people that they're emulating, but also yeah. more, uh, I don't know, attractive. Is that like an okay word for a frog? Yeah. Yeah, they needed them to be appealing looking. And you get, I, I love that they wrote some of those things into the script too, where it's, you know, the jo- the running joke about it's mucus, like not, you know, slime, yes. it's mucus instead. Yeah. And they're, they're often walking on their hind legs, which makes them more anthropomorphic, mm-hmm. right? Like they sure. they did a lot of things like that to try. And of course the eyes, right? The eyes are not frog eyes. They're more like the quote unquote Disney human eyes. Mm-hmm. And I thought yeah. all of those little things add up to really throw back to that feeling of those earliest Disney animated films. And you've mentioned this already several times, like John Lasseter, Ron and John, all of these old school Disney and Pixar 
leaders, they wanted this to be a revival of what Disney used to do because they knew there was magic there that just wasn't being tapped into. For sure. That's one of the reasons Princess and the Frog is considered the beginning of Disney's new revival period. It was where Disney finally seemed to be getting a handle again on what modern audiences wanted from animated films, whether it was 2D or CG, and while still staying true to what the studio's heritage was. So all of these things kind of working together in a perfect storm to make something that felt more like Disney. And you mentioned it at the beginning. This film was that for you. Once you revisited Mm -hmm. it, rewatched it again, you discovered something in it that you had been missing. And for me, it was Tangled, which we will get to. But Mm -hmm. this new revival period was super important for getting people, I think particularly in our age category, like millennials, getting back on board with Disney. Exactly. Because we, Mm -hmm. like, for us, I feel like it hit us at such an interesting age because Throughout our teenage years, Disney was just terrible. So it was just like yes, a so very, <laughs> a very easy like. Okay, we liked that when we were kids, and now we can kind of leave that behind us. But obviously, mm-hmm. you and me, look at us. Uh, we have not left Disney behind us. Yes, and that mid two thousands period was actually really difficult for me because Disney had long been something I identified as part of who I am. Like my love mm-hmm. for Disney was to me a defining trait. So when it started to be so bad and I didn't love it the same way anymore, I actually felt this sounds like so, I don't know, so dramatic and like, you know, (laughs) early, like mid teenage years kind of thing. Like get me my chemical romance in the background when I say this, but it just felt like I was losing a piece of who I was. Like I just didn't know who I was if I didn't love Disney and everything they were doing. And I just, yeah. it wasn't clicking with me. So yeah, this new revival period was so important for people like us. And I think that's part of the reason that the story was so integral to this as well. And much mm-hmm. like other Disney films, this story had been in the works for a long time. And what I thought was really interesting is that Pixar and Disney had both been working on their own versions of the Frog Prince story, which was the basis of Princess and the Frog, they had each been working kind of separately. It makes me think of that scene in 13 Going on 30 when Jenna Rink and whatever her name is, uh, the jerk girl that she works with in the office, that they're both working on their own ad campaigns separately. Lish doesn't know what I'm talking about because she's not obsessed with this movie like I am, but other people will know. Sound off in the comments. Never, Never seen it, I don't think. You, ha- <laughs> you haven't seen it? That's for another time. I'm so sorry, but we're watching so. that together. Regardless, <laughs> Pixar and Disney were both working on this at the same time. So when they came together, when John, Steve, Ed, all those Pixar people came over to the Disney side, they actually just combined existing concepts to get the final version of this story. And they were taking a more interesting look on a fairy tale. Well, what I what I really noticed was especially rewatching it yesterday is it's kind of got a lot of similarities to Cinderella. It's got a oh. lot of the same characters, the same um movement. I mean, like you said, Mama Odie, fairy mm-hmm. godmother, even just like the wedding scene at the end. Yes. It is so yes. similar to Cinderella. And I mean, you're definitely, you don't have the evil stepmom, stepsisters thing, but you've got the like uh, Mr. Fenner, Mr. Finner, and like all those people rooting against her. And she's kind yes. of starting in a similar social situation. Mm-hmm. And the male is the prince. He's, I mean, we get a little bit more of Naveen, but he's still an idiot. Like he's still <laughs> just kind yeah. of- there so I yeah yeah, so I kind of just saw it as like a 
a, a newer revamped Cinderella. Cinderella. Like the ways. story is is very very similar to me, which yes. is something I just noticed this time around. Yeah, and I mean your comment about Tiana's transformation scene at the end in the Bayou resembling Cinderella's. This again checks like with all the boxes mm-hmm. for someone like John Lasseter, who again is like, yes. Walt was perfect. Walt loved like, and mm-hmm. Walt loved that scene. Let's do something similar. So I think there that makes sense. And you pointing it out now, I'm like, oh yeah, there are more similarities. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the fact that they kept some of those similarities, but then revamped it for a more modern audience with, you know, Tiana being the one that defeats the villain. She's not a damsel, yes. damsel in distress. Those small or arguably big changes combined with those similarities does make it a much stronger fairy tale that will resonate with more people. Naveen is actually the damsel in distress. Yeah. <laughs> Naveen. He can't mince. If he can't no. mince, what can he do? How's he going to get out of here? Yeah. I think, I think too, this, this kind of, you know, realization for us now that it's a rework of Cinderella and like, oh, wow, it's such an empowering story. It's interesting, though, because early versions were not so empowering of this story. Originally, mm-hmm. early versions had Tiana being named Maddie, and she was a chambermaid who worked for a rich white lady who was then wooed by a white prince at the end of the movie. Now, clearly, there's a lot of problems here, yeah. <laughs> even though that's a historically accurate profession for a black woman in the twenties in new Orleans, it's much too close to a slavery storyline. And obviously um, through their, you know, conversations with their cultural consultants on this film, but also just, you know, hopefully being at least a little bit aware the story team was like, yeah, we can't do that. Um, Maddie as a name also sounds too similar to Mammy, which is a term that was often used to describe black women in like a motherly role and it's not really a flattering name or term to use for them so and then on top of that right at the story process when they're still trying to make the story come to life new orleans was considered an insensitive location in light of hurricane katrina Mm. which happened in 2005 and especially since black communities were hit the hardest by that tragedy you know, it, it, there were a couple things that the story team and the directors were up against when they first proposed yeah. this. And I mean, obviously they went ahead with it and obviously a lot of people reacted positively to it. But it's interesting to me that in this time at Disney where things were very fraught with tension and change and trying to overcome obstacles, like this film, it was a real like grind to get anywhere. Yeah. Um And they changed the title as well. Originally, it was going to be The Frog Princess, and they changed it in 2007 because obviously calling it The Frog Princess implies that the heroine might have been unattractive in some way or undesirable. Like so, so many things that they had to change right from the beginning of this film. Do you know they actually, they blame the title in some way for its, I mean, we'll talk about how it did and everything later, but they... They say that they shouldn't have put princess in the title because it kind of just makes it more of a girl movie, which they went in a different direction with something like Tangled. Yeah. The ghost of Katzenberg still having an impact here. He's like, we should have named it Oliver and Company because that's a boy's title. Like, oh my, (laughs) Tiana and Company. So just like the story was something that needed a lot of work, the soundtrack was also something that was dramatically different from anything Disney had done before in a film and obviously kind of was necessary for where they were setting the film, but it did take 
audiences maybe a bit more time to get used to because you and I both mentioned that the music yeah. was something that did not grab us right away. And it's interesting to me as a stan for Alan Menken, he was originally supposed to work on this movie. Did you know that? I didn't know. Alan Menken was originally supposed to do it, but then John Lasseter came in and he's like, you know what, Alan, love what you're doing here with the Princess franchise and all these other movies in the 90s in particular, but like people know you by now. Like you're you right. right with the same tone. And I mean, he's not wrong. John Lasseter was not wrong. Alan Menken's soundtracks are very distinctive. You can tell when it's Alan and when it's someone else because he became that like, you know, voice, not really voice because he was the music, but like he became the sound of the Renaissance. And so it was a fair concern for John Lasseter to look at this and go, okay, we're trying to reinvent something here. We need like fresh mm -hmm. talent. So they turned instead to a really famous Pixar composer, Randy Newman, who is an accomplished musician in his own right outside of Pixar. But he did Toy Story. Um, and I think he did, he might've done Monsters, Inc. as well. Don't quote me on that because- He did A Bug's Life, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, he, he's done a bunch of yeah. work with Pixar. So yeah. John was like, you know what? Let's give, let's give Randy a shot. Because Randy Newman's style is also very distinctive, but is much more, I'm going to call it bubbly. Like it's very punchy. Mm -hmm. And because they wanted The Princess and the Frog to combine jazz, blues, and gospel music kind of all together, Randy's approach to stylizing the music was a much more appropriate sound than Alan. It was also something that he was very passionate about. His favorite records growing up were always from New Orleans. It was something that was really mm -hmm. important to him. And he already had the you know, lived the research and yeah. all of that. So he was coming in kind of knowing what he wanted to do with it. Absolutely. And it was a natural marriage again between the Disney and Pixar teams, right? Like, it's yeah. like, I can vouch for Randy. He knows what he's doing. Like, let's get him in here. This also was one of the first films since The Little Mermaid that had all the singing done by the voice actors. So a lot of the films in the Renaissance, you would hire someone to do the speaking roles and then someone to do the singing roles. There were films like Beauty and the Beast sprinkled throughout there where you had most, if not all of the voice actors singing as well. But those were rare mm -hmm. because I'm thinking even off the top of my head, like Pocahontas and Aladdin, they all had different singers. I'm pretty sure almost all of them just did the speaking. Mulan and like, had some different singers. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, Leah Salonga got her money's worth in the 90s with the Renaissance because mm -hmm. I think she was the singing voices of Jasmine, Pocahontas, and Mulan. I'm pretty sure she did all three of those. So like right. that's money in the bank for her. Yeah. But this this was a movie where they also wanted like the characters to be authentic from beginning to end. So if they're speaking, they're singing. I really like the movement towards this because I mm -hmm. think it's something they've really maintained going forward when I think of just Tangled and Frozen for the most part. Um, yeah. Moana, you've got the the speakers also doing the singing. And I really mm -hmm. feel like those are the people that should be doing these movies are the people that can do both i for me it does yeah. really add a little bit of extra something yes well and the character to have that the voice actors know their character inside and out mm -hmm. right like it's yeah. it's not just intellectual knowledge it's emotional knowledge they've spent time with the character mm -hmm. like getting to know them and i think that's why songs like almost there which as you mentioned before is the i want song or the princess yeah. hair like the heroine anthem in here that's what makes it so good like mm -hmm. you hear yeah. through anika like anika's performance you can hear how tiana has been working towards this dream right you can hear sure. how she's been working towards it and it's also a really strong song because lyrically like 
this isn't just unfocused dreaming and yearning. Like she's working towards it. Like, and we're shown how she's working towards it in the way it's animated and the way it's sung. Which feels a bit new for a princess. It is. I think about it to have it, like a very specific goal and a plan. And I yes. mean, you've talked about this as being, you know, a qualm that you have with Ariel where it's just like, I've got this like, you know, dream, but no mm-hmm. idea on how I'm going to get there. Tiana's yep. got her 10 step plan. She knows what she's doing. Yes. And I think that was a really cool addition to her character yes. to be so focused. Yes. And hard work. She understands the breadth of her dream, what it takes to get there, and she's working towards it. Ariel was mm-hmm. just kind of like, I want this so bad, but I know nothing about it. And I'm like, just like, you're the worst. And like, I don't want to get into it. But, but even like a Cinderella, you know, it's just mm-hmm. like, a, she's got a dream is the wish your heart makes. What exactly is your dream, Cinderella? Just to get out? Like, you yeah. know, no plan. That's true. That's true. The last point I want to make on the music is just like, let can we address friends on the other side? Like, what a banger. Like, I... yeah. I put that on in the car and I am bumping. I am bumping down the highway. I'm bumping on the way to the market. I'm bumping on the way to the gym. And what I think is a very interesting fact. This is a real interesting fact. Again, I've got a couple of those for this movie. It was the first villain song in 13 (laughs) years. 13 years. Wow, really? Villains. A villain had not sung a song since what? Let me do the math. If it's 13 years, 2000, no, 1996. So like Frollo was the last one to sing a song. Hellfire classic yep yeah and this is one of the reasons that people compare facilier to ursula in a lot of ways like poor unfortunate souls and friends on the other side in a lot of reviews of and like you know criticisms of the soundtrack for this film in particular they talk about how this song feels very much like a poor unfortunate souls vibe like you know they're both charlatans making a living from making other people's dreams come true but ripping them off ultimately so it's yeah i mean true. people love him for that reason and then people who are a bit shallower maybe are like they both have purple thanks for coming out yes they both <laughs> do have purple involved correct and black. appreciate that for you thank you for sharing uh, uh coming to our ted talk but yeah, like the music, the music is such an important part of this film and it becomes the perfect backdrop for each of the characters because like, I mean, it's, it, Tiana was such a big deal, right? Like she was Disney's first black heroine or person like, like black lead. And there were a lot of hope, mm-hmm. like high profile names as a result vying for this role. Like we had people like Jennifer Hudson, Alicia Keys, Tyra Banks. Not that Tyra Banks is great. I just want to say she's not. All three of those would have been real bad. They would have. They would have, but these are big, like high profile people yeah. who approached Disney specifically and were like, I hear you're doing this. I want to do it. And like, they personally contacted the studio about the role. Um, I do think it's funny that Beyonce was apparently too good for it. She refused to audition uh, because she knows she doesn't need to do this to still run the world. Who run the world? Beyonce, honestly. Like, I also, like, again, I I've never been a fan of any acting that she has done. So I'm. Yeah, no, that she might have been just yeah. self aware enough to be like, no, I'm not an actress. Ultimately, yeah. the role went to Anika Noni Rose, who we mentioned, who her biggest thing that I know her from is Dreamgirls. So she actually starred alongside mm-hmm. Jay Huds in Dreamgirls. Yeah. And I mean, she's amazing. I've also seen her in The Good Wife and she was incredible in that. Like, bless. Right. She's just, she's wonderful. Well, she she was one that also really pursued this. She heard that this was happening and was just like, I need to do this part. Like, this is mm-hmm. me. Yes. Um, and I heard that she actually, her first audition was right it was the day after the premiere of dream girls. So mm-hmm. the premiere happened and then she literally, she's like, I went home early. I didn't go to any parties. I didn't have any, 
alcohol or anything i went home early and i ran lines and i practiced because Ugh. i really wanted this part so. i love her even more now i know like, right that sort of commitment just shows how needed this movie was right and i mean we'll mm-hmm. talk about it in, when we get to like the impact of the film once it finally came out but like again you can't overstate how big of a deal tiana was in particular as mm-hmm. a character like People were desperate for a character like her. And as a result, there were a lot of expectations for her to live up to. Like Disney heroines, we've talked about this over the past couple episodes, but Disney heroines have been drawing a lot of criticism for being passive and submissive in the past. And while characters like Mulan and Pocahontas really helped change that narrative, filmmakers like that were on assigned Princess and the Frog, they were determined to make Tiana even more contemporary than Mulan and Pocahontas mm-hmm. had been. So that's where we get this um, character who's defined by her ambition. And as you mentioned, like Ariel shared this too, but she didn't really understand what she wanted. And she was willing to sacrifice way too much to get it. Whereas Tiana is defined by the value of hard work. Like that's the message that she's kind of communicating to audiences. No quick fixes for Tiana. I mean, no quick fixes. Ended up and the thing that she thought might be a quick fix kissing the frog and then getting her Mm -hmm. fortune really backfired so she really got burned by that one yeah um yeah like she's just such a different like refreshing approach to being a woman who works for what she wants like we haven't seen Mm -hmm. that yet we we've seen not really female characters take their destiny into their own hands but never in a way that felt approachable and relatable it was always something so much bigger than you know like saving china (laughs) Kind of huge. It's kind of big. I can't relate to that. But having a dream and seeing the way to get there is to work hard for it. Like that resonates with me. But also such a good lesson for girls that are Mm -hmm. working crazy hard to achieve their dream, but then forget about, you know, prioritizing your family or, you know, taking a minute to, you know, hang out with your friends and things like that. Just a a lesson Mm -hmm. for a different personality type completely, which yeah was unique. Absolutely. Teaching the importance of balance, right? Like needing yes. both sides of the coin. And I think the reason Tiana's character is so believable is because she was based on a real person. So there was mm-hmm. a restaurant owner named Leah Chase, who was a chef in New Orleans, and she was known as the queen of Creole cuisine. And she had a restaurant called Dookie Chase, uh, which became a gathering place during the 60s. Um, for many people who participated in the civil rights movement. And this is what influenced that idea that you get from Tiana's dad in those opening scenes where it's like food brings people together from all walks of life. So this became, of course, like such a strong backbone for Tiana's character and for the story as a whole. Um, Because, I mean, food brings her and Naveen together, mincing those mushrooms, brings them together in Bayou. And I feel like adding the dad just adds a whole other emotional layer to it where it's not just her dream. It's her dream with her father who's passed on. So there's just like an extra level of really her wanting this and us wanting this for her. Yes, it's just a very rich story. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Naveen is interesting because he actually, like you said, he's a character who's actually fleshed out. He's one of the first princes or romantic leads, with the exception maybe of Aladdin because he's the titular character in his film. Mm -hmm. But Naveen is one of the first engaging male love interests. And another look at Curbs coming through with the fun facts. His accent was actually a blend of Bruno Campos, who was the voice actor, his Brazilian accent and French. So since Maldonia is like a fake place, he's like, I'll make a fake accent, which gives me real Shrek vibes. Like Mike Myers with the Shrek accent where he just kind of made it up. 
I kind yeah. of love that because if you're going to have this prince be from a fake place, like make a fake accent. Like why not? Right. Why yeah. The heck not. And there's, there's so many little details like that about the characters in this film because Facilier was inspired by a guy named Baron Samdi, who was a voodoo god of magic, ancestor worship, and death, which is like intense. But the dark. guy who and right very, very dark. The guy who animated him, uh, his name is Bruce Smith, and he said that Facilier was meant to be the love child of Captain Hook and Cruella Deville. That's where he uh. got this kind of you know essence. And when you, when I read that, I was like, oh, I see it. I do. Yeah, I pick, for I pick sure. up on that, and I like. I love. I love these little nuggets that the animating mm -hmm. team kind of included and the acting like actors included in this film and i mean let's can we just for one brief second just mention that charlotte is the real gem of this movie like this uh. movie would not be what it is without charlotte am i wrong like she's exactly who she's you want your first best friend to be like she is yeah. the best part what her that line where she's talking about wishes being for babies and crazy people yeah so I die good. every time. I die every time. I love like, when she... she's like in the restaurant with her dad and she's like, tell her daddy, tell her. Yes. And then yeah. just like, on, tell will him. not yeah. let him get a word in. And then he just shoves the beignets in her mouth. So he that really feels talk. like you and me like, sometimes. So good. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like, I feel like we have to mention Lewis and Ray, but like, I just don't mm -hmm. care for them. I'm going to be honest. Like, oh, wow. They don't, I don't know. They don't do anything for me. Do you like them? I mean, Lewis is, Lewis is not my favorite. I do really like Ray. Ray's really? song is one of my favorites, like the going down the bayou. I think he's really funny. And I think it's actually really sad when he dies. Like Facilier fully just steps on Kills him, him. Well, and crushes him. Ray is the first comic character to be killed off. He's the first. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like, yeah. if only it had been Olaf, honestly, like, could we have just <laughs> him instead? Like whatever this is an olaf hate oh. podcast so if you're into olaf get out i mean they did melt olaf have you not seen frozen 2 yeah but then they made him came back so like i oh, man yes water has memories like whatever yeah but yeah i that's interesting i for some reason thought that you were with me on not really caring for either of those characters not a lewis fan but i do i do really like ray and i think he's really an important factor in tiana's growth in her development yeah no that's true like i really think he plays an important role there yeah okay we can let we can we can keep him around that's mm -hmm. fine i mean we can't he died so oh, <laughs> so uh technology since we've you know gone several years since we talked about our last film has definitely mm -hmm been developing the world has been moving more towards cg but there is a new 2d software out called toon boon harmony which toon is boom canadian harmony. made yeah and so shout out to canada i guess and um, for curbs for finding and... that fun fact how many fun facts is that that are relevant for curbs this episode oh, it's like so eight many. we're on a roll oh, yes keep it going <laughs> i'll just pretend like i didn't know that because okay i definitely did yeah um, let me have this okay <laughs> So with this new software, uh, you actually have the ability to animate directly into the software. So it's not something Ooh. that you necessarily need to use paper animation for anymore. For this film, they decided to stick with the paper animation method and just scan it in. I think hmm. largely in part because everyone that they're working with has been working on paper for their entire careers. And this is a real struggle that we've seen 
over you know the past 10 years in the 2d animation industry is that now people are going digital and you've got a lot of animators in their 40s and 50s that have worked on paper their entire career and now they're being asked to learn a new software and all of this and um that's definitely been a struggle. The last project I worked on was a 2D project and there was a lot of people that hadn't used the software before. So we had to, mm, um, yeah. you know, teach a lot of animators and there's still some that won't. So we still had to do a hybrid of scanning some Jeez. in, but that only really applies if you're a rough animator, if you're a cleanup a- animator or anything else down the chain. So if you work in tones and shadows, which is the lighting, or if you work in the mm-hmm. organic effects, then you're pretty much any employment that you'll get at this point is software based. So it's a huge learning curve for a lot of people in this industry. Okay. But can you imagine being like Simon, the intern where your job is just to scan all of these things in? Like I'm honestly picturing someone standing in front of a scanner and all day, all they're doing is just like that light from the scanner flashing in front of their Mm -hmm. face. And then at the end of the credits of the movie, it's like scanner, Simon, just first name, like nothing else. (laughs) Simon, the intern, This is uh, what they would call their like animation assistants. And there's actually quite a bit more to it than that because they have to scan it, but then they've got to bring it into the Toon Boom software. They've got to make sure it lines up with the layout. They've got to make sure everything is scaled properly. So there's, you know, a bit more involved, not the funnest job still, but. I love how, like, I just automatically was like, wow, scanning, even like I could do that. Like a donkey could do that. So uh. I mean, it's definitely a, tends to be an entry level role and one where it's like, you know, you're learning the craft. So this is where you start. So that's definitely where a lot of, a lot of assistants start. Sign me up. Yeah. But I really feel for these guys because I feel like that's definitely a difficult transition. And since they did the, they did the rough animation and cleanup animation still on paper, but for this Mm. film, um, all of the organic effects and stuff that happened after that was done in the software. So I'm sure there's a lot of people that did have to learn for this. And in case people don't know what organic effects encompasses, it's essentially anything that is moving that's not a character so if like mm. the door is opening on the trolley if the water is splashing like the right. bug uh lights moving through the bayou like all of that would be done by the organic effects team so wow they are a team that would have had to definitely get up to speed on the tomb boom harmony software and learn that for this film yeah there's a lot of that in this movie for sure yeah There was one exception, which was the almost there sequence, which we talked about how it was animated really differently than the other parts of the the film. It's got like a completely different look and feel to it. Yeah, it's very flat and graphic. Yes, exactly. So they completely skipped the cleanup animation for this. So they had the rough animators scan Mm -hmm. directly into Photoshop and then uh, do the color and everything from there. So you'd have to have a specific type of animator working on this because some rough animators really work very rough and Mm. require quite a lot of cleanup work going into it. But then there's other animators. Um, Sandro Cluzo is one who worked on this sequence who works very clean um, with very, you know, his lines are very crisp. He's like a cleanup animator's dream. Like you want to work on his stuff because he's just <laughs> like, it's so smooth. It's like the work is mostly done for you. So they got those kind of animators to work on this sequence. So that sounds like the difference between you and I taking notes for this podcast. 
I'm the one who puts like every single word in. So I would be, yeah. you know, a recorder's dream, I guess. And, and you would be much more rough than that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I love that this sequence was made using tools that like I know how to use because they compiled it mm-hmm. in After Effects and like I've used After Effects maybe twice. So like, okay, I don't know that tool, but like Photoshop, I'm quite familiar. It's kind of, it's interesting that there are so many different uses for these types of softwares. Cause I'm sure mm-hmm. if they were like, Hey, fix this up <laughs> for, for Princess yeah. the Bra- I'd be like, I don't know what to do with this. Photoshop is generally used for background painting these days. So it's yeah. Oh, in yeah. any kind of 2d, 2d feature you would, you would have some elements of done in Photoshop. Yeah. It's just cool to think that like the same tools that professionals use we have access to as everyday loser people who don't work on Disney animated films. So as we discussed, so many things to consider with this film. We want the magic to come back. We have the first black heroine. We are trying to get 2D going again. And as a result, this film had a lot on the line. We wanted this to Mm -hmm. be very successful or else it could mean the death of 2D animation forever at Disney, which, you know, a lot of us- It was. It was, but we were hoping it wouldn't. So there was- There was a lot riding on it, and it just so happened that the year the film came out was a very iconic year in American history. It's the year that Obama was elected and became the first African-American president. So the social and cultural background of the states was kind of primed for this film to come out because it was a year of big changes and a lot of movements happening to make, like, Black people more prominent, right? Like, it's just they're they're rising to where they belong quite honestly right yeah and originally they set this film to be released on christmas day you know this classic kind of like christmas day go with your family Mm -hmm. watch the movie love it but they changed it and this kills me they changed it to avoid competition with alvin and the chipmunks the squeakquel not even the first alvin and the chipmunk they're like so this this shows you how rough disney have been doing in the the, like success department with animated films if they were scared of alvin and the chipmunks like i stand the care bears so when we talked about the care bears earlier that Mm -hmm. you know that made sense this to me this doesn't i stand by that i don't stand by this though and it ended up being a huge mistake because they opened the week before avatar i know i know and and the thing too that i find interesting is like the demand for this film was super high already like when people Hmm. heard that this film was being made and that it was coming out. The word of mouth marketing created this huge demand for merchandise. Like all of the Tiana costumes sold out in the run up to Halloween of that year. You know, Tiana was already scheduled to appear in shows like Disney on ice and like the new magic kingdom castle show, like right out of the gate. Like they were, they were already planning all of these things, knowing that she was going to be successful. But then as you mentioned, they decided to release it like a week later and then Avatar came out and it just kind of blew everything out of the water. Avatar was the movie. So Princess and the Frog got swept under the rug. And absolutely. I mean, we've mentioned people were looking forward to it, but it's, we need to also mention some of the strong negative reactions that people had to the film because they are valid concerns, obviously. Mm -hmm. And one of those that has come up with movies like soul as well is that Tiana spent the majority of the film as an animal, as a frog. Yeah. So one of the questions audiences had was why make her black in the first place? If she's just going to be an animal the whole time. Right. Right. A very fair question that obviously we don't have an answer to. We didn't make the film. (laughs) But yeah, it's it's something that is a great question. And I now notice that more too in other movies like Soul, which I know you and I have talked about before. Because um, while it's great to see the representation, it's not, you know, 
it's not the full story of who she was. Like a lot of the merchandising is them as frogs and things like that. Whereas that's not really an issue with any other of the princess characters. Exactly. And Naveen and Ray were also very highly scrutinized as characters. Like a lot of Mm -hmm. people felt that Naveen was too white and they thought that Ray just sounded like an uneducated Southerner. So it's kind of like, you know, these really strong stereotypes for characters like Ray And then the voodoo element was also very controversial because there were a lot of Christian groups that thought it was like way too sexual and horrific. But then you had other non-Christian groups who didn't like it because it was depicted as magic as opposed to a legitimate religion. So you're kind of getting like a lot of fire from both sides. And I mean, similar to Pocahontas, Princess and the Frog is set in a period of American history that is extremely shameful, but you can't really explore those issues because it's a family film, right? So the movie shows racism in the South as being pretty tame, like making out that women like Tiana really didn't have it that bad. Like she could have gotten her restaurant. She just needed the money. But I mean, at the time, an unmarried black woman would not have been able to purchase property. And Big Daddy LaBeouf, as sweet and generous as he is in the film, like he wouldn't have been allowed to eat at a black owned restaurant due to the segregation of the Jim Crow era. So like there's there were a lot of things that were difficult for audiences to process and a lot of legitimate questions that they brought up but i think unlike pocahontas based based on what i have learned researching this yeah. film there were just as many camps that were reacting positively to this film because ultimately a lot of the reviews and criticisms by black people that i've read have said that it's a positive representation of a Black heroine and Black families. And it's making Black stories more accessible to more people. And one of the biggest positives for a lot of people was that Tiana's father, James, is a very rare example of a Black man being portrayed as a loving father in Hollywood. You don't get that that often. And he was very present into Tiana's life. He was very loving. He was very caring, very generous, very open. Um, And... I mean, that extends then as well to other positives of seeing a lot of, you know, positive female and female relationships or female and male interactions in that film that did cross class and racial divides. You rarely see this in media. And while it might not have been entirely accurate, a lot of people were excited to see it because it makes it accessible to kids, right? It starts normalizing these things as well as Mm -hmm. Tiana and Naveen being an interracial couple. They're stable, they're happy, they're thriving quite honestly yeah so i mean ultimately these things outweighed the negative responses and the success of the film prompted disney to green light at least one new hand-drawn animated film every two years but of course we know that was very short-lived they did not do that (laughs) which is so (laughs) sad i know so sad but i mean i do understand it as a business model you need a whole different crop of talent you need different people mm-hmm. you, you know it essentially doubles the staff that they need to keep so i mean i i completely get it but it still makes me sad right because this film is a gorgeous return to what most of us fell in love yeah. with with disney as children right mm-hmm. so i mean i would be so fascinated to hear in like 20 years some kids make a podcast like ours right now and to discuss how they feel about 2d animation because they're growing up with disney films and franchises that are entirely cg like 2d animation is a thing that just like doesn't exist for them so i would be so interested to hear i mean i hope that the the classics of the 
renaissance and you know some of the originals at least maintain their exposure and now that there's things like disney Mm -hmm. plus everyone has access to all of those yeah i hope it i hope it just doesn't die to the point where people aren't aware of it but you're right all the new stuff that's going to come out is going Mm -hmm. to be cg absolutely and i think like overall i think we can both agree and i'm assuming others do as well that Princess and the Frog is one of those films that might not have gotten the recognition it deserved when it first came out or experienced the success that it should have, but it is it has had a lasting positive impact on audiences. Because I mean, what are you so excited about at Magic Kingdom that's happening? Oh my gosh, yeah, they're revamping Splash Mountain to be mm-hmm. a Princess and the Frog themed log ride, which I honestly can't wait because I love, you know, I love water rides and mm-hmm. anything that's like well done and then there's like a bit of an excitement, like a drop at the end, like those are just <laughs> automatically my favorite. But the theming of Splash Mountain is very outdated, very problematic. We won't get into that, but yeah. to now make it princess and the frog like it's already my favorite ride and i haven't even been on it because i know it's going to be so beautiful and it's still going to have you know yeah all the pieces that make splash mountain what it is so Mm -hmm. couldn't be more thrilled Okay, Curbs, it's apology time, and my apology this week goes to none other than you, because I was a little bit under the weather, you may recall, while we were recording this episode, and had to take many uh, water breaks and collect my thoughts breaks and complained about being on fire for most of the Mm -hmm. episode. So thank you for putting up with me, being patient, and really doing the heavy lifting on this episode. I mean, considering you described yourself as feeling like you were on fire, I think you did a pretty great job. So apology definitely accepted, but entirely unnecessary. My apology this week is also for you, actually, because I very incorrectly corrected you early on in the episode Mm -hmm. when we were talking about the story. And I, you know, you said that this was the first fairy tale in the United States. And I very boldly interrupted to say no what about Pocahontas? And then you very patiently corrected me and said, that's not a fairy tale, Curbs. So <laughs> I guess I feel a bit like Gretchen Wieners, you know, but I'm calling myself out for, I'm sorry that I corrected <laughs> you incorrectly and I'm sorry about talking about it now. So apologies. Curbs, I forgive you. Just uh, don't let it happen again. I will do my very best. You know, it would help me not do it again would be to remember all of these incredible resources that we use to put this episode together. And I would like to kick off that list with an article by Brooks Barnes from the New York Times called Her Princess Come and Critics Too. And one of my favorite resources for this one was Magic in the Bayou, making a Princess and the Frog documentary. Lots of goodies in there. A lot of good interviews and stuff with behind the scenes. Really enjoyed that one. It sounds like a good one. There was a really great article as well from the Black Atlantic called The Princess and the Frog, Rewriting Jazz Age History and Culture. And an article from MousePlanet.com, When Roy E. Disney Resigned from Disney Twice. Still blows my mind that he resigned twice. That's so funny. Finally, I would like to give a shout out to film review of The Princess and the Frog by a guy named Paul Estelle for the Feeling Animated blog, it was insane. It was chock full of so much stuff that I didn't have to go and find the sources myself. So thank you, Paul. 
for saving me a heck of a lot of time, but also giving me so much great information to share with our wonderful Scenario D listeners. And if you're looking for more shenanigans like these, make sure to subscribe to the Scenario D podcast wherever you love to listen. And don't forget to catch us on Instagram at Scenario D Podcast. You're going to love the magic we're making there.